Before I begin this sermon, I need to give you a little warning. This sermon will contain strong opinions, strong images, and strong language in terms of storytelling, not cursing. Sometimes this makes us all a little uncomfortable and might even result in us not listening past a certain point. However, as this gospel reading is so crucial to our lives as Christians, I would ask all of you to listen, and as Archbishop Thomas Cramer wrote, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this passage. So, with that understanding, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Wrong, wrong, wrong. St. Peter is wrong again. Last week, and just a few verses prior to this reading today, Peter made his confession of faith. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And Jesus renamed him from Simon to Peter. Peter, as we have the word today, comes to us from the Latin Petrus, or rock. The phrase, tu est Petrus, is how we have the phrase coming out of the Vulgate, the Latin Bible translated by St. Jerome. What I have sometimes wondered is, did Jesus name Simon Peter because of his rock-solid faith? Or is Peter more synonymous with rocky, as in rocky or shaky faith? Peter here is definitely on shaky ground. After all, Jesus just called him Satan, the accuser. And how often does Jesus do that? Peter is failing to see what all of us fail to see. We fail to see the cross. We also fail to see who Jesus truly is and what incarnation, our Christmas theology, is truly all about. And when we fail to see as we must see, then our doctrine, our theology, our faith is completely misaligned. We put our faith into something that is false, into something that is not true, into something that oftentimes is a lie. Our Gospel writer, Matthew, is very adept at using language to convey exactly what he means. The opening verse of this passage tells us everything that we need to know to finish this gospel the way he desires us to. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples. Show, not preach, not teach, not any th other action than to show, to demonstrate, to provide the example of what the disciples must become. And what he shows them is genuine life, suffering, death, and new life. The lie that we get caught up in is the same as St. Peter's. We don't want Jesus to undergo suffering. We don't want Jesus to be crucified. We don't want Jesus to get too dirty. Look at much of our art and masterpieces, paintings, stained glass windows, 
pen and ink drawings of Jesus. One comes to my mind that I saw for years sitting in First Baptist Church of Beeville. It was of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Church tradition calls this episode the Agony in the Garden. However, when we often see images of the agony, Jesus looks serene. He looks stoic, gazing up to heaven without much care about the events that are unfolding around him. However, when we read the gospel account, Jesus was agitated. Jesus was distressed. Jesus' blood became great drops. Jesus' sweat became great drops of blood. Instead of pictures like this, perhaps we need more like William Blake's depiction, where Christ is in great distress and an angel is holding him up, already in a foreshadowed, crucified position. But incarnational living requires Jesus to be like us, to be human as well as divine. And because the power of God, the power of God's love, is so counter to everything in this world, it had to be stopped. It had to be put to death. The Jewish establishment, the empire of Rome, the martyrs of Japan, the Christians slaughtered by the Turks, the ghastly display of the Nazis, all attempted to end the power of God on this earth. But they can't. Taking up the cross, Jesus overcame sin, death, hell, and all the trappings of destruction. But it is gory work. Too often we romanticize Christianity. We romanticize the redeeming work of God in Christ. We make Jesus too clean, too fable-like, and in doing so, we lie about the humanity of Christ. What happens is we allegorize parts of the gospel and reinterpret them to be less than they are. Take up thy cross is not some unpleasant dictate that compels us to live with some discomfort with some unpleasantness. Take up thy cross is a command to die. Die to self. Die to passions and sins. Die to the corruption of this world. Die, as in give your life for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. It has been recorded that the 20th century has seen more Christian martyrs than any other century. And the way things are going right now, even here in these United States, we are on track to have the 21st century outpace the 20th in the number of martyrs 
who die for their faith. During the Roman persecution in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries, martyrdom was seen as the highest, holiest, most privileged form of devotion to God, to die a death like Jesus did. Later, after the Battle of the Melvian Bridge, the coronation of Constantine as emperor, and the ending of the Roman persecutions, many people devoted themselves to the white martyrdom, going into monasteries, becoming hermits, or moving out to the desert and eating scant food and drinking only water. In most of Europe, Christianity became the official religion, ending years of oppression. But, and this is my opinion, I think we as Westerners lost something. We lost a zeal. We lost the fervor that our early Christian ancestors had. The word that most readily comes to my mind is complacent. We became complacent. Too comfortable. In February of 2017, ISIS the Islamic State, began promoting the execution of Christians and called for their followers to begin the slaughter. A few months later, in April of 2017, on Palm Sunday, both St. George's Church in Tanta and St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Cathedral in Alexandra were bombed by terrorists while the liturgy was taking place, much like we are doing now. As best as could be told, 47 people were killed, martyred that day, with an additional 126 injured, many of them severely. In each church, a suicide bomber detonated a bomb, destroying themselves and flinging screws, ball bearings, and highly flammable substances into the building. Several eyewitnesses say, stated that at St. George's Church, the man approached the altar, charging forward, probably to kill the greatest number of people. One lasting image that I saw was this. A palm cross, much like we make and wear on Palm Sunday, and a Bible or a prayer book, sprinkled with the blood of martyrs. Take up thy cross. March 24th, 1980, the Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, was saying Mass at the Divine Providence Hospital, a church-run hospital that specialized in oncology care and also treated those who were terminally ill. Romero, the day before, delivered a sermon in which he called all Christians who were Salvadorian soldiers to obey God's call, not the government's 
and end the regime of oppression, brutality, and violation to basic human rights. As a result of that sermon, and many of his radio dresses, and his phrase of God's preference for the poor, and the work he took up as Archbishop, he was a threat to the government. At the hospital, he delivered a sermon. While he was delivering the sermon, a red car pulled up outside on the street just next to the chapel. A man emerged from the vehicle. Romero was walking a few steps to stand at the center of the altar when the man, working at the behest of the government, pulled a gun and shot Romero in the back through the heart. Romero died instantly. And if that wasn't enough, at his funeral mass on the 30th of March, 250,000 people gathered to bury their beloved archbishop when smoke bombs exploded. Gunfire rang through the plaza, even coming from the National Palace, and between 30 and 50 additional people were killed, either as a result of gunshot wounds or being trampled to death in the stampede. Later still, on December 2nd, four Catholic missionaries from the United States, three nuns and one layperson, all women, were raped and murdered by five members of the El Salvador National Guard. On the day that Romero was martyred, a new Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runsey, was about to be enthroned in Canterbury Cathedral. Breaking tradition when he heard the news, he addressed the congregation and later said that of all days, that day reminded him of the price that being a bishop, being a Christian, can truly carry. Take up thy cross. One of my friends, the Reverend David Chalk, whom some of you may know, has a phrase that I'm going to steal. Don't hide the cross. Now, he is usually referring to people who wear a cross pendant on their neck and tuck it into their shirt or their blouse, or as some clergy do, stick it in their pocket. Don't hide the cross. At its worst, the cross is just a reminder. At its best, it is the symbol of life, death, and resurrection. But often, we make these crosses small, so the necklace doesn't weigh on our necks, or we tuck it in our shirt so as not to show anyone. St. Paul talks about the logic of the cross and how it is foolishness 
to those who don't understand it. If we, and by that I mean all of us, you, me, this parish, our diocese, the church universal, if we really believed the message of the cross, the logic of the cross, many of the things we worry about would fade away. A few weeks ago, we heard the story of the feeding of 5,000 people. And one of the problems the disciples encountered was the cost. How do we feed this many people with just five loaves and two fish? But the cross says there is plenty of food. Come and eat. Many churches around the globe struggle with questions about finances and how to keep the doors open and the power on. But that's not the right question either, though very necessary. It's the cost of ministry, the cost of discipleship that must be weighed. If we really believed the logic of the cross, we would stop bickering over issues that sometimes seem so silly in light of the present sufferings of this world. We would not be arguing over how to feed the hungry, we would simply feed them. We would not wring our hands about health care. The church would aid in providing it. We would not judge as many people as we do. Christians seem to be the most judgmental people I know. And instead, we would minister to prisoners and to their victims. We would not sigh and say, woe is us, to lowering church attendance. We would seize the opportunity to minister to every individual we encounter and show them a better way. What about our neighbors who live directly across the street from the front doors of this church, from our parking lot? Do we even know them? We have churches even in the Anglican Communion, arguing over the semantics of Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, to which I want to say, what about keeping it simple? My neighbor's life matters. And just who is your neighbor? My friends, when our Lord Jesus Christ stretched out his, love, his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, he redeemed all of creation. He redeemed us. He redeemed space and time and matter as well. But the cross is an instrument of death but not just death. The cross in Roman times was used for slaves, criminals, rebels and revolutionaries, and people who opposed the power of Rome, the power of the world. Roman citizens were not executed on a cross. So in order to suffer such a fate, you had to be a non-citizen, or, in other words, you were a thing rather than a person.
we must crucify ourselves each day. We must take up our crosses and die to self. We must form our alliance with the citizenship of heaven and not that of earth. This is a political season. We are about nine weeks away from an election, and already we are seeing so much unrest, demonstrations, violence, destruction, and even murder, all because of, for lack of a better term, political issues. But the cross stands over and against that and says to all of us, Come, die to passions, die to sin, die to violence, die to political persuasions, die to self, and be healed, be made whole, be restored to true life. Jesus began to show his disciples that the Son of Man must die. And Peter didn't listen after that. He missed the climactic work of resurrection. The Son of Man must die and will be raised on the third day. Dying to the cross is the beginning of our third day. God forbid that we forget the cross. God forbid that we hide the cross. God forbid that we fail to take up our cross. God forbid that we become ashamed of the cross. Today, how are you going to take up your cross? Is there a neighbor you don't know? Is there a co-worker who can't make rent? Is there a drug addict you know who needs help? Is someone you know going through the worst episodes of their life who could use a call or a companion to walk along the shore with? Is someone lonely? because their phone never rings. Take up your cross for those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. How will you take up your cross 